Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And joining us today on the show is my guest and friend, Tarun Chitra, founder and CEO of Gauntlet Networks. This is an episode that I have been very excited about. If you have been under the rocks, the proverbial rocks, and you didn't see that Gauntlet is now a unicorn, we're going to break that down for you today. They're effectively trying to de-risk DeFi. And we'll talk about that as well. We were talking about how Tarun was an early adopter of the show. He came on during the the depths of the pandemic uh, in 2020. He was in his parents' basement. I was in my grandparents' kitchen. And happy to sort of have you back on. It's been a long time coming, that's for sure. We've uh, we've come a long way from recording podcasts in our underwear. Got it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't know if I actually have come that far. I'm not as stylish as you. You've got the glasses to match the shirt. But you've always been stylish, sir. Don't under underplay your hand. You know, I, uh, I, I like to think of it as like, you know, the world is better when you wear more colors. And, uh, you know, for some reason... People, especially in New York, really love black a little too much. So it's my my way of sticking it to that. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a very interesting background. We talked about it on the last show. Dee Shaw, you worked in the high-frequency trading space, building different types of systems. You're a quant at heart. Did you show up to work as a quant colorful? Yeah, so the beauty of sort of algo trading and and is that it's it's a little more like a tech company kind of aesthetic than it is uh you know like finance and people in suits although i think it's in a lot of ways algo trading is kind of a funny mix of academia and tech companies it's like mm -hmm. a lot more like a academic and intellectual than say tech companies there's there's certainly no uh, you know, memes floating around. Like, you know, if you go to Facebook's office, there's tons of really bad memes from like 2016 everywhere, which explains why they missed all of the Gen Z social networks, I guess. But there's way more like people reading math papers in algo trading than there is, you know, kind of like crazy fun stuff. But there's also like no, there's definitely no sort of like wardrobe that's required. For instance, actually, D Shaw and I think I think Two Sigma also did the same thing. They had this policy uh, called the Other Agenda policy, which is that everyone who was like working in sort of like non, you know, directly revenue producing roles, like people who were working as uh, assistants, people who were kind of helping people out in a lot of different ways, they were always sort of the the kind of criteria they were looking for were were people who had like PhDs in comp lit or, you know, like was like a theater person and on Broadway with the idea that like, hey, if you have another agenda, 
than like, you know, doing a job that's kind of like probably a little bit boring uh, that you're really just doing for for the money. Uh, you'll do a better job. Uh, and so there was like way more people from like the arts, like highly overeducated people booking airline tickets, which I thought was kind of an interesting environment. So what made you decide to start this firm? This was pre-DeFi summer, pre, I mean, most of the stuff going on in crypto. In the depths of the bear market post the ICO boom, what was it about the space that drew you into it? Were, were you looking at things in your previous role that made you inclined to dive into crypto? Were you compelled by the mathematics behind it or the trading behind it? Yeah, so I'll maybe, you know, give a kind of short version of like how I got into crypto. I, I really got into crypto because I was working on building ASICs, but for, you know, at D. Shaw and some Bitcoin miners front run us. So the first time I ever heard of Bitcoin in 2011, I mined a bunch, sold it all in the bottom in 2013, but then kind of kept abreast with the academic papers and, and sort of innovations. And I think basically during the 2016 and 2017 boom, you know, there was this huge influx of like new protocols and new papers that people were claiming, you know, could you know be faster than Ethereum, do more transactions per second, do all sorts of weird stuff. And, you know, I think I just kind of spent a lot of time really diving into, yeah, the the math and sort of the, you know, the papers that people were writing and one thing I found that was interesting was like the community of people who were kind of building these projects tended to come from a cryptography background. And the people who were on the trading side were just trading and not really like paying attention to any of the technology. But, you know, when you re read some of these papers, there was a lot of sort of in very in-depth financial assumptions. There, you know, there were these like quite strict financial assumptions that were made. And it just kind of made me wonder like, hey, actually, like if you were to try to think of this more rigorously from the finance side, you know, all the cryptography stuff was super rigorous, but the the financial aspects of, you know, say like a proof of stake protocol, people were very hand wavy with that. And so that mm -hmm. was what made me say, hey, like, how would I think of this as a trader, but designing, you know, the inflation model of, of one of these things. And that that led me down this rabbit hole, you know, about like, hey, how do we build tools that are similar to what you use in trading, but for designing these systems, not for sort of like exploiting or trading against them. Uh, and that that's sort of the the genesis, uh, effectively, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like a Jim Simmons 2.0 type of story. You, you go from the academic side of the equation to the quantitative trading side of it. What is your litmus test from a more like, mathematic economic perspective for a given protocol blockchain what are the red flags you look for and what kind of gets you comfortable knowing that this is something that might have staying power yeah 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 so i think one kind of interesting thing is like you know one of the ways as we were kind of building out the technology and tooling infrastructure at gauntlet uh, one one thing we we spend a lot of time and still spent quite a bit of time doing is really writing a lot of academic research that sort of like formally tries to describe how different protocols work. And you know, until 2020, no one really did that for DeFi because the the sort of math that's used for analyzing DeFi protocols is actually very different to the math you use to to analyze cryptography and crypto systems. And so you know, there weren't many people who were kind of in the intersection. Uh, and so that was kind of where we were, and we were trying to write this, the basic research. But one thing that is kind of a common thread to the types of things that we were able to kind of formalize, and then people were able to take our papers and then go build more complicated things. One thing I've always found beautiful about the DeFi space in particular, more than just crypto at large, is that it's very close to pure science in that someone who probably doesn't really understand what the math is doing, but like kind of has some intuition, can write code and deploy it. And if it works and attracts capital, 
then you know you can start to say like hey look this thing has worked for a while there must be some theory that explains why you know in practice and production people are able to put money in the system and it's able to be sort of sustainable and so one thing that i definitely spent a lot of time looking at is can you a decompose what this protocol is doing in terms of simpler protocols because if something is trying to promise that it does 500 features but none of those features are going to be completely unique right so you should be able to say like hey there's some analogy to either a something in traditional finance or b something that exists in DeFi and and is sustainable and if i can't really break something down into smaller components then usually there's sort of a sense in which there's a sleight of hand from the you know the person who's who's doing this in a lot of ways because you know they're trying to claim they're doing this very complicated thing all at once as a big Rube Goldberg machine and you can't break it down into smaller components that are easy to understand and and that to me is usually like a warning sign that there's something kind of something's wrong but then again there are some systems like that that you know, actually weirdly do do sometimes actually work, even though they're this kind of Rube Goldberg machine. And, you know, Ohm in a lot of ways was like that. It took me a long time to actually understand what was going on <laughs> in spite of the fact that I had this like meme that had nothing to do with the protocol working, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, so many different questions I want to ask, but I'm going to go with... Crypto at its core, right? I mean, is a, is a new, innovative, nascent technology underpinned by incredible computer science and mathematics. But there's also a market on top of it or a market tied to it that is unpredictable and at its core, almost unscientific and completely chaotic. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of Exactly to your point, something like Ohm, which you look at the underpinnings of the protocol and it makes zero sense to you, yet sometimes these coins, if there's enough momentum, if there's enough emotion, will take off. How do you um, reconcile those two aspects of this market? Yeah, so you know, I guess the um, quote, degen ape side, how do you reconcile the fact that the people using these things are sort of degen apes who haven't read the code, haven't paid attention to what uh, is going on. They just kind of saw some marketing on Twitter or Discord and they're like, I'm going to put six figures into this thing. With the fact that like, hey, sometimes these things have quite detailed math for why they work. So a, a phenomenon that kind of has sort of, maybe it's more of an epiphenomenon over the last 10 years in kind of computer science is that sort of the most robust algorithms, the most robust sort of systems tend to usually be the simpler ones. And you can, as long as you have a way of sort of like chaining together simple operations that are each individually very robust, you can build a big complicated system. But things that are very intricate and kind of complicated usually don't end up being robust. You kind of have to have these simple building blocks that are each individually robust, and then you can put them together to build a complicated thing rather than building one complicated thing up front. And so an example of that is really in machine learning, where you know a lot of the improvements to sort of like image detection and chatbots and stuff like that comes from the fact that these sort of you know neural nets and, and deep neural nets are sort of in some sense, on a component basis, sort of robust. Like I could randomly change uh, the model a little bit and it still will be able to tell you hot dog or not hot dog. Mm. And that the, the sense in which there's this like kind of robustness built in means that even if there's like noise or sort of like, you know, chaotic behavior happening, it's still able to kind of like give you the right answer. And so... What you find in DeFi in particular is that there's almost this gladiator-like competition between you know, these different protocols and, and the capital that's getting allocated to them. And if they actually, if there is some truth to the fact that their mechanism works, you effectively should basically be, whether or not it's a really informed, perfectly rational investor putting their money into a protocol, or whether it's a DGN ape, you should basically get the same outcome. 
Um, that's sort of like, like I said, like the, this idea that like, you know, why didn't we have facial detection that worked in 2008 versus having facial detection that worked in 2016? A lot of it had to do with people, instead of trying to find the perfect model, people finding simple but very robust models, putting them together, and then those things work even when, say, like someone tries to, to, to make the thing say hot dog and not hot dog or the opposite to give the example from Silicon Valley, the TV show. <laughs> what about this? I want to talk about Gauntlet and kind of unpack exactly what you guys are working on there. The boilerplate is de-risking DeFi. Why didn't you decide to come into the market full time and just build a less risky at first principles protocol or blockchain versus create a service that will help de-risk the existing platforms out there. Yeah, so I mean, when I started, most of the protocols uh, that people were building were layer one blockchains. There was no DeFi. There was no, on the application layer, you know, CryptoKitties was like the pinnacle of complexity in, in Ethereum land. Like there wasn't really much else other than kind of very simple NFT apps and, you know, 0x kind of worked, but not really. And and Compound and Dharma were still being built. And so I think at that time, what I had found was I was unable to really discern the difference between, you know, these different protocols without spending a ton of time analyzing them myself and then like writing code to try to like stress test them. And so it just became way more clear to me that like, Hey, everyone's going to have this problem. It's just going, and it's going to get worse and worse over time because people are not really incentivized in a lot of ways to make their protocols clear and simple and easy to understand. Uh, because it's hard to convince people to put money into something that sounds exactly like something they already put money into that works already. So, this might be a pretty cheeky question, but I'm sure a lot of of the institutional folks that maybe came from your old world or in your old world today might look at all of the breaches happening and hacks and think crypto still looks pretty risky. Why hasn't Gauntlet fixed this yet? You know, I think uh, in general, right? A, it takes a while to understand risk. Like you need a lot of samples to like figure out sort of what the statistics actually look like. B, you can never fully remove risk in any financial market. C, you know, one interesting thing about DeFi is if you look across the board, very few of the sort of like insurance-like products have really worked or have gotten a lot of usage or actually provide that much security. And one thing I, I I I sort of personally believe pretty strongly is that it's a little cart before the horse to make a, a DeFi insurance protocol uh, before you have an actuarial model, right? Like when you think about how normal insurance works, people really, you know, they'll be the first sort of like crazier insurers who are willing to cover anything, and usually, oftentimes they can get blown out of the water, but they effectively generate data for kind of more sophisticated insurers who, you know, spend a lot of time doing statistics, really understanding sort of like what the actuarial risks uh, at play are. And then based on that, come up with sort of well-designed insurance products that are tailored around the quantitative models, not the other way around. They're not making an insurance product and then backfitting a quantitative model to the product. And I sort of generally feel like one thing that, you know, we've really focused on is building really strong and, you know, well-tested and rigorous sort of quantitative models like actuarial models and making sure they're used in production. For us, that that's effectively, you know, adjusting these parameters for different protocols. So like yeah. changing the margin requirements, exactly. changing interest rates. Let's break yeah. down like the process because although some people might think it's fairly complex, I think you can you can explain it in a fairly simple way. You you build the model, you have the model make predictions, 
It's running simulations. It's trying to identify how much risk is in the system. And after it makes those predictions, after the model sort of predicts what could happen, it then generates a type of proposal for a given protocol, whether it's interest rates or some of these other things that you're talking about. Is that the gist of it? Is that kind of how would you delineate the steps of how the system works? Yeah, no, that that's actually pretty spot on. So if we zoom out a little bit, we sort of have two main products. Um, the first one is sort of the risk management one, which is, yep, take on-chain data, take exchange data, different types of market data, run a lot of models, fit a lot of models based on those that data, make a prediction of sort of some outcome. And the outcome is usually a combination of you know how much risk is in the system plus how much revenue is the system generating right just like a bank the riskier the loans you give out the more revenue you generate but obviously the more risk you're taking and there's always this kind of trade off between the amount of risk that the system is taking versus how much revenue it's like generating for capital providers liquidity providers token holders and from those predictions say oh if we adjust the interest rate by this percentage or we we reduce the margin requirement or we increase the margin requirement by a certain amount we can kind of optimize this trade-off between risk and reward where reward is sort of revenue generated by these protocols and then it automatically generates a proposal and pushes it to blockchain um, our second product, which is newer, but we, we really uh, definitely were very excited about it, is incentive optimization product. And so what that is, is, you know, if you think about DeFi protocols, they are doing what Uber did when Uber started, which is spend $10 to, you know, acquire $1 of revenue. But instead of spending $10 that they raised from venture investors, they're spending in governance tokens. Yeah. And they're giving out huge amounts of emissions. But Spending hundreds of millions of dollars to attract liquidity isn't exactly wise, especially if you're not thinking about how you're distributing it within your system. Maybe certain pools in your system have tons of organic demand. You don't really need to incentivize them. And other parts of your system, if you incentivized, you would drive more usage in your protocol. And so figuring out that sort of how to allocate and how to spend uh, these kind of incentive budgets while also not overspending for liquidity, volume, etc. is sort of the second thing. And that's that's a similar framework, right? Take in the on-chain data, make a bunch of predictions from, from these models, and then go uh, and either directly... In some cases, it's a proposal. In some cases, it's working directly with the team if they haven't moved to a DAO. Or fully. sometimes it's, it's just changing your own behavior or position right yeah 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 yeah, definitely exactly and so but like the key is to make the recommendation in a way that the protocols can actually go use them and then once the change is made right so let's say we we reduce the incentive to some pool or we decrease the margin requirement then we observe what happens after the change and then look at how the the true change deviated from our prediction, right? So like, say we predicted that the protocol would make another $5 million in revenue from this change, or would have value at risk go down by $10 million. And then we look over the next, say, week, and you say, oh, okay, like, it actually generated $1.5 million in revenue, and the value at risk went down by $8 million. And then based on that difference, you can see how well your model is performing, right? You Because you've, you've made this change, and then all of the traders and all of the liquidity providers in the marketplace, they adjust their behavior, right? They're either, they might be getting more incentives and making less incentives, and based on that, they adjust their behavior. And so in this way, you're able to really, really tune these models so that you, 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 you actually have very good both predictive capability, but also measurement of this kind of like revenue and risk trade-off surface. And once you have that, then you can really start thinking, I think, in my mind over time about more complicated risk products that meet the needs of decentralized protocols versus, hey, how do we take this TradFi thing that you know we've seen 
and just like shoehorn it into DeFi, right? It, it's just like most of those products don't work. Like very few of those have, have, have gotten any type of adoption. And so I like to think of it as like, you know, doing kind of the like hard work of building the actuarial models, putting them into production, seeing the changes, optimizing the models over time, doing that first before you then start designing risk products and protocols. Yeah. It, it, I, I feel like it, it, it's less cart before the horse like some of the other attempts we've seen. Correct me if this is imprecise, but it's more about trying to fine-tune these systems versus creating peripheral products to basically hedge, hedge yourself or cover something or cover yourself if shit hits the fan. Yes, exactly. And, and I think like over time... Once you really understand how to tune the existing system, you can start thinking about what you could do better to hedge, right? Versus just making hedging products and then hoping that the market just uses them on its own. You know what I mean? Like It's very hard to actually get people to use this type of stuff. And I think it's even harder in in, in DeFi because the, the products are just, you know, the products that do really well in DeFi are not just straight up take a centralized finance thing, make the closest clone you can, and then try to get people to use it. Very rarely, pretty much never works in DeFi. It's always something that's somewhat adapted to the nuances of crypto systems and how people interact with crypto systems in a way that's very different than traditional finance or even centralized crypto. Explain this to the audience because I remember when we first when we really jammed on this, the example you gave or the way in which you defined or painted a picture of what Gauntlet is was that on Wall Street, you have these risk desks at a hedge fund somewhere like a D.E. Shaw. They're running similar types of simulations. And then if there are certain can, if certain things happen in the market, the system will effectively say, this is a hot dog, <laughs> uh, you know, shut it down or, or don't eat it, whatever the analogy might be. How is Gauntlet different than a risk desk within a hedge fund? Like in principle, they're the same, but in, in the way they operate, it's very different. Yeah, so an, a, another way of thinking about us is a little more like the risk desk at the CME or the risk desk at FTX, right? Because we're doing this from the perspective of the protocol, not the perspective of the individual trader, right? So we model individual traders, but the goal is to optimize a function for the, the protocol, for the DAO. And that, that function can be sort of like, we don't want that much risk, but we want to ha- make a, a certain amount of revenue. And there's, you know, different protocols have different desires for that, right? Some protocols are like, we want to make as much revenue as possible because then our protocol will grow faster. There'll be more TVL. We're willing to take the risk. And some protocols are like, absolutely not. We want like basically no risk ever, which obviously means less revenue. And so a way of thinking about it is we're monitoring all of DeFi, like as much as we can, and using that to basically say like, based on that, what is sort of the net risk in each protocol? What is the sort of net risk across DeFi? And then based on that, optimizing these kind of like parameters that 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 exist that you can use to tune these systems. Oh my God, that is a massive wasp. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Shit. See how big that is? Did you see that? It was literally it was literally this big. It was literally that big. Alright, sorry. Jesus Christ. I was trying to get a screenshot of you smacking <laughs> the window, but unfortunately I was not fast enough. Um all right. One thing that's come up time and time again as a result of what we've seen with Wormhole to Ronin is 
can we make a multi-chain future possible? It seems like that's where all the risk is concentrated, at least from a headline perspective, like when we look at the paper and we see what people are talking about or care about. So is there more risk with multi-chain and how do we diminish that risk? We can't bring it to zero. There's no, there's no zero risk, but how do we work on at least lowering it? Yeah, I, I think one thing people have to understand sort of about bridges is uh, there's sort of like always a sort of trade-off that exists in them, which is, you know, you're trying to convince another chain, if we think of each chain as sort of like a, a country or a, a, city, or a city, you're trying to convince another city to accept your city's currency, right? And to accept your city's rules, at least somewhat. Uh, and, you know, just like humans have very messy pacts between them, you sort of are forced to do things that you that are not ideal. So one route, which is the wormhole route, is to make synthetic assets. And what that means is like in the same way you have wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum, you make a wrapped wormhole wrapped Ethereum and you use that as a Solana SPL token. The problem is what happens if the synthetic price is not equal to the real price, right? I have Ethereum on Ethereum and one ETH equals one ETH. And then I have this sort of wrapped ETH on Solana. Does one wrapped ETH actually equal one ETH? And obviously when there's kind of these hacks, they oftentimes in the synthetic asset world, it corresponds to, to telling one chain, hey, actually, yes, one synthetic is equal to one ETH. On the other side, you say, actually, no way. I just minted 5 million new synthetic things, so it's worth less. And usually, I mean, that's effectively exactly what happened in the wormhole case. But these synthetic assets have this problem of like, A, you have to have some mechanism for synchronizing things, which is expensive, needs arbitrageurs, needs a lot of trading. But then also, B, the attack surface area is quite big, right? Because like, if maybe there, if there's a bug in the smart contract that allows you to mint a lot more of one, then you know, no matter how good your mechanism is, if if it turns out that that bug is there, you're really not going to be able to fix it. And then C, it fragments liquidity. On Solana, for instance, there's like ten different, you know, probably more now, synthetic ETHs. There's wormhole ETH. There's AnyBridge ETH. There's Synapse ETH, and dot 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 right there's just like so many different versions they're all supposed to be the same thing but they're mm -hmm. not and so then you have to make this like market making mechanism so you can trade them and they can stay roughly pegged to each other and that that's a whole can of worms that's very complicated right it relies on many moving pieces and th the surface area for attack is quite high the other route another route is sort of a native token style thing where you say Look, the bridge operators are going to say we have some notion of a price, like an oracle price, that says right now the Solana to ETH price is X. And so if you lock up five ETH on the ETH chain, we will give you five X soul on the soul chain. Now, of course, for that you need the price. And so one way of getting a price is to have an oracle. And so that's the layer zero version of the world. It, it's sort of more centralized in some ways because of that. But it does guarantee you don't have the synthetic asset thing, which is quite complicated and it, you know can go wrong in many ways. And then the third model is sort of what the nomad and sort of more sort of like very high on the decentralization aspect of things, but kind of lower, like slower latency wise, like it takes a while to process the transaction. Yeah this is connects to nomad is sort of really doing this kind of like native atomic swap looking thing uh, of like locking assets on both sides and escrowing and then releasing once both sides verify they've been escrowed which is like sort of a little closer to actually what you know traditional financial you know swift type of things look like and so these three things all have different trade-offs they're all really complicated and my suspicion is that all three will survive because for different reasons. And but they'll all give you slightly different quality, uh, like risk reward trade-offs, right? The higher risk ones will be the ones that give you low latency and very good UX. 
And then the lowest risk ones will be the ones you have to wait a while and like take forever, but like actually are you have very high guarantees. And so I, I suspect what will the market will develop in a way where there's a segment of the market that's willing to tolerate way more risk, but they're also going to do very small transactions. And there's a segment of the market that's like, we're only, you know, we're OTC broker and we only trade sizes like of a million dollars or more. And we only use the slower bridges, right? And like, we're going to have this kind of like quality of service stratification of like the people choosing what their risk trade off is. And I just think that like, yes, the headline numbers are big, but the headline numbers are big because like, you have to have a lot of liquidity locked into these bridges. That that's the only way yeah. you can kind of like facilitate transactions on both sides. And so that will get hardened, but I think we'll end up in a world where the end user will have a lot of choices and it will end up being like choosing your risk tolerance, matching the bridge to your risk tolerance. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A crypto fin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com crypto. So you can kind of move the dial on your risk tolerance as one way to solve for what we've seen with these various breaches, but what about adding to the number of market participants? Does that what could that help as well? Just adding the number of validators who are scanning and verifying these transactions between chains? Yeah, I mean, I think that will over time increase. It's at the moment we're just trying to like basically learn the lessons of like how do we get the minimum viable thing working that is very, you know, secure in a bunch of ways. I think that, mm -hmm. you know, once we have that, then we can start talking about doing things like expanding the validator set. And so that's where, you know, roll-ups like, you know, Optimism, Arbitrum, Mattis, etc., ZK roll-ups, they're all kind of punting on this question of like, how do we get a ton of validators? Uh, and uh, un until like they actually have their systems working, Versus, I think, bridge operators are the opposite. They're like trying to just like onboard as many validators up front. And mm -hmm. those are just two different development paths with very different risk tolerance levels. You know, and so again, there's there's many layers of risk tolerance here. There's risk tolerance at the layer of developers who are developing this stuff and like how fast they want to move fast and break things versus being very, very slow. Then there's risk tolerance at the level of the users of how a user somehow needs to map like a how much risk they're willing to take and b 
how much size they need to move across these chains as sort of like the input parameters to being like, okay, like, do I use the risky bridge or the less risky bridge? But just kind of like the early internet, you had to like do a lot more work just to like, you had to make a lot more decisions to pick things out for you. As standards get better, there will be sort of like the appleification of things of like removing all of that choice from the user. And then the user just kind of has like a dial and they pick once and then they never think about it again. And it, we're, it's just like, it's just like, it is a little bit like the early internet. Like it, it, we're still, all the warts are exposed to the user, right? The user, even just using a wallet is crazy, right? For, for the average user. Yeah. And so I think, you know, with the amount of capital that's been put into the industry, you know, we're, we're, we're going to see improvements. I think it's just that obviously the headlines are, are never, never fun to, to reason about. <laughs> Do you think that this problem will be exacerbated by a potential Cambrian explosion in app chains? Do you think that more and more projects or more and more apps will specifically just rely on like the subnet of a given blockchain and then exist in their own city to an extent, their own city that's purpose-built for them? And then they have to worry about all the complexities of engaging with the broader city from which they ascertain most of how their underpinning blockchain works. You know, I think it's uh, funny you used the phrase subnet, and then uh, yet you've uh, you and Kevin gotten a little tiff on Twitter because he's never been on the podcast, given that he's the inventor of the subnet, the concept of a subnet, at least within their ecosystem. But it's not so different from the Cosmos IBC type of model, but we'll have him on. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he wants to be on. So, <laughs> you know. uh, but uh, you know, I think that the app chain model is really amazing from a UX perspective. Like the cross chain transactions in Cosmos land, where there's sort of like a common messaging standard that all the Cosmos chains agree to, basically means that. Well, the wallet experience feels like, you know, almost like using a normal, using like Venmo or using Stripe or like using some, you know, sort of centralized fintech type of thing. Boo. Which is pretty, no, but but the fact that the UX is as good is awesome, right? Like, um, yeah, no, I'm going uh, the, the centralized, yeah, centralized yeah. fintech. And I think like that is certainly a compelling reason to be in the app chain world. I think the problem is, you know, in the case of like being within one ecosystem of app chains, like Cosmos and what Avalanche is doing, which I would say are like there, I put them in one cluster and then I put sort of the like Polkadot near ETH2 in another cluster because they don't exactly have, they, they theoretically have a common messaging standard, but it's not like, it's not very obvious relative to say like IBC and Cosmos. I, I generally think these ecosystems of app chains will do great. But I think if everyone's going to do the Ronin style thing of like their own chain and then have to have a bridge to many different places, there's a lot lost in translation, right? When you have a common messaging standard for, for these groups of app chains, you effectively have lowered, there's no cost to translating, sending messages between them, right? It's basically costless. But when you have to be like, hey, I have the Ethereum virtual machine, which makes these assumptions about code i have the solana virtual machine which makes these assumptions about code i have the polka dot one which makes these assumptions about code Th then the, then you have to do a lot more translation and the translation is where all the bugs can come in and it's like that like converting one city's lingua fraca so to speak to another one's that translation process is lossy just like with with natural language uh for better or worse a, a, a great kind of anecdotal example of of why translation never works is um, when I was like graduating college, like 2010, something like that, there was this whole big boom in these companies that were trying to do single IDE app development. Like you could make an app for Android and iOS once. So you write the code once and then you can make the app for both. And then it, it magically would like trans, you know, figure out how to translate things between the two. Of course, Apple and Android 
they don't like that. They want you to like stick to developing on their thing. And so they made it harder yeah. and harder for these things to like actually work. And a lot of these companies raised at that time tons of money and none of them ever success- succeeded. And, and, you know, it took basically Facebook making React and like other things like that to like kind of get standards that work on all OSs. But even then, people still go back and rewrite the native app, right? And so there's in programming, there's just as much of this like lost in translation thing, even though it's obviously like less probabilistic than spoken language. There's still this prop translation problem. And the more you have to do these translations, the more the surface area for attack is. And that's sort of the bridge sort of paradox, if you will, versus having a common messaging standard means you kind of agree on sort of like, hey, here's, here's the language we're going to use for doing these types of operations. What I really appreciate about this conversation relative to the one we had two years ago is it's been pretty interdisciplinary. We're not just talking about market structure. We're talking about like the fundamental building blocks of crypto. And I also want to bring it to NFTs, right? Because when you guys closed your round, DeFi was kind of caught in the doldrums, whereas the NFT market was going to the proverbial moon. How does Gauntlet take advantage or capitalize on what's going on in NFTs? Or is that not something you're interested in? And then follow-up question to that, how do you see what they're calling GameFi developing and how do you get involved in that as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think NFTs and DeFi are over time kind of getting closer and closer. Uh, At the end of the day, NFTs are assets and uh, people who have assets always want leverage on them. Historically, humans are just greedy in some ways. They always want more than what they have and they're Mm -hmm. willing to borrow to do it. And I think as people are starting to develop ways of getting leverage on them, naturally a lot of DeFi stuff will expand there. I think we, you know, we're barely scratching the surface. Like it feels a lot like 2017 in DeFi is a lot like sort of where now is in NFTs. There's not a lot of great infrastructure. There's not a lot of like purely decentralized ways of using NFTs, right? Like you still mainly have to use you know, the open seas or, or gem or things like that, right? There's still in the same way that who's air swap in this, in this. Analogy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who is it? That's a great question. I, I'm not totally sure. But you know, if you think about the 2017 era, there was always there was like this thing of like, yeah, we, wouldn't it be great if we actually had like decentralized versions of these things that actually worked and like, were efficient. And, and then it took like this couple years of like infrastructure building before we kind of actually were able to, to realize that. I feel like the same is true for NFTs. Like, there's going to be more and more. We didn't even call it DeFi back then. What it was open like, finance just dece- or something. We called them. We called it decentralized exchanges, but it, DeFi didn't exist. It was DEXs existed, but not DeFi. Yeah, I, people did kind of say open finance sometimes, but I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah, back then, I I feel like it was a nebulous term to begin with. But yeah, yeah, yeah I I mean, I guess the Dharma folks invented the phrase DeFi in 2019. Well, it's funny they're doing NFTs, so maybe they'll come up with the name for whatever the new thing is. There you go. It's not there. Maybe they won't be called NFTs in three years or the next cycle. Non-fungible finance, non-fi, I don't know. But uh, but like, um, you know, I, I think like we're kind of in this era where like there's things like fractional, there's things like that are that are kind of getting at the core of this idea that like, hey, there is there's a bunch of finance projects, there's like PawnFi, NFTFi, all all sorts of things. But kind of in the same way that like Ave version one when it was Ethland didn't really work because it was sort of peer-to-peer. And it was just like hard mm. to source by borrowers and lenders on a one-to-one basis. But then it turned out that doing what Compound did of like pooling people, pooling the lenders and then having borrowers borrow from the pool, like was the thing that like unlocked kind of growth. I think there's going to be some sort of sense in which like models like that are going to 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 work. And obviously in non-fungible land, it's much harder to pool together assets and borrow against them. But there are, you know, I think we're we're really starting to see innovation. I think like things like gem are just like really cool infrastructure for 
being able to like purchase baskets of things and, and reason about like, you know, the price of, of NFTs in a more like systematic way than strictly floor price. But yeah, so I think, you know, long story short, as NFTs start to touch DeFi, we'll be working with them. As games start to touch DeFi, we'll be working with them. And I, I think in gaming, you know, we're starting to see a lot of people, at least on the incentive optimization side, um, you know, we're having a lot of great conversations there. And, and it, a part of the reason I think in gaming people get, get it more is that, you know, if you go to Blizzard or Riot, they have these gigantic data science teams that basically try to figure out like, hey, how many orcs should we have in the game? Oh man, we had too many orcs mm. because like there's too many people whose like average player level is like nine ninety. I don't know. I don't play any games. Whose average player level is like ninety nine? Okay, we got to reduce them. We got to make them way more scarce. And there's this always this kind of trade off between like gameplay quality and like how easy it is to to play a game versus like how easy it is to find items and resources in the game. And that that's basically the same as this DeFi incentive optimization problem. So definitely have been 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 thinking a lot about you know applying those models to kind of some of these games and, and thinking about how the design of those works yeah so i think like all of those things will touch DeFi. i i i still think fundamentally DeFi is a real black hole and every anything under the sun in crypto eventually just has to touch it let's hope for your sake i want to go to a tweet that you had which i thought was really interesting you said that crypto is ironically one of the last places where you see the scientific method applied in the 2020s as it was to physics in the 30s to the 40s. How is the scientific method applied in crypto? Yeah, so like I get, this is kind of what, what I was talking about earlier, which is this idea of like people when Hayden made Uniswap, I don't think he like was like, oh yeah, it's this convex optimization problem and like, oh, like if there's enough liquidity, then arbitrageurs will keep the prices synchronized. And oh, like at some as the liquidity increases, it's harder to manipulate. He was literally like, "Hey, there's this cool idea that Vitalik had. I'm going to go implement it." Right. So he writes the code, mm-hmm. he puts it out there. People start using it, and over time, it just is able to kind of have this like crazy organic growth. And that is like doing a science experiment. You have some idea, you have some hypothesis, you don't really know why it works. You you kind of have some inkling intuition for like, hey, this this would like work in these ways. And like when you try to implement it and write the code and do the engineering, you like learn a little bit about, you know, the system you're working with and, and tinkering with it, but you don't know it perfectly. And then you go put it in production. That's like when you when you go deploy a smart contract. That's that's sort of like the hey, I'm experiment started. And then the DGen apes, the users of these protocols, whoever, them interacting with it is the same as sort of like nature interacting with your experiment, right? Like you have an experimental setup, there's tons of variables you can't control, that's nature. And here, nature is, you know, board ape holders or whatever. And basically, they're going to be chaotic, interacting, trying to break the thing, extract as much money from it. But if it survives that, that's the same as your kind of scientific experiment being like, I designed this experiment and it withstood all of the challenges of nature, which means that there is some sort of like true thing, some true mechanism underlying this experiment. And then you can go back and say, oh, look, what's the theory of why this worked? Like, what are the properties? Like, based on these observations, the data is all public, right? So you can go back, analyze the data, look at the data. And say like, okay, there must be some theory for why this is working that describes like the user behavior or describes the math underlying this thing. And then you you can construct some theory, like you know classical mechanics is an th- example of a theory. And once you're the theory, then people can use that to try to build something new, do an experiment, and then if it works, you you go back and analyze it. And that's what I mean by this kind of like scientific method in sort of this truer mm. sense like a lot of science right now th- there's like a lot of uh sclerosis and like institutional debt that exists you have to like mm. spend all this time convincing a funding agency you have to go like basically pretend that somehow like your physics project actually has a 0.001 percent chance of curing some cancer even though that has absolutely nothing mm. to do with your experiment because the funding agencies mm. like need that you know some type of like impact story 
And so, like, there's a lot more, like, bureaucracy, institutional kind of, like, stuff, like, gamesmanship, whatever. Here, this is just, like, pure unadulterated, like, hey, we did the experiment, and, okay, crash, people lost money. Oh, it, it worked really well. It's, like, a sustainable microeconomy, and there must be some reason why. Yeah. And the open source nature of it allows allows that experimentation to really take yeah. hold. One thing that's very interesting to me, and I, I kind of drew a comparison to you and sort of like a lot of crypto people who are changing the dynamics of markets and the quants that came about in the 90s, 2000s, a Jim Simmons as an example. And that was kind of the evolution from like StatArb to quant trading as it exists now. And it redefined Wall Street. How is and how are you seeing the move from quant trading to DeFi? What will that make Wall Street look like? So I, I think I said this on the last podcast, but I love saying this, so I'm going to say it again, which is I don't mm -hmm. think DeFi really revolutionizes finance per se. I think it revolutionizes lawyers. You just get rid of lawyers for a lot of transactions that you normally need kind of like a bunch of legal work and you know there things aren't exchange tradable you can't like source liquidity for some weird swaps contract that's like you know between two counterparts and somehow in defi you're able to make these things like token the tokenization means that you can turn these things that were legal contracts into like exchange tradable assets right and i think a lot of that boils down to like you know the long term view is like if defi is really successful there's just going to be a ton of smart contracts. And the only thing that banks are going to do is be liquidity providers or arbitrageurs and traders. A, a lot of it is more about like reducing the amount of investment banking stuff you need. And mm. that's where all the lawyers are, for the most part, and, and turning it more into just like trading kind of a permissionless nature. And so like the institutions of the future might really just be people who have capital and they're allocating it to different protocols. And that's it. So that's funny. So so everyone talks about, you know, crypto is going to usurp Wall Street. It's going to usurp the bulge bracket banks, the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's of the world. But the Jane Streets, the jumps and maybe the virtues, they'll be fine. I mean, there's a reason they're all in this market already, right? Like, it's right. Yeah. I think it's more. Yeah, it's like the, insti the the like old school institutions are the ones who are the most who are going to be cannibalized the most in my mind. Got it. All right. Any closing thoughts? What are you What are you most excited about for the next few months? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm kind of excited about seeing how the kind of increase in bridges really kind of drives growth in the space. Um, you know, I think maybe a year and a half ago or something, I I had this when I think when Jump announced they were they bought Certus One and were building Wormhole. I sort of had this view. I was like, okay, Jump's doing this because they they think it's like the movie The Hummingbird Project, where whoever owns the one bridge like owns all the money, right? Spoiler alert. <laughs> I, I, I guess that's true. I, I wasn't totally revealing the rest of the movie, but yeah, you're right. All right, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. And, uh, and I was like, okay, well, maybe that makes sense. Maybe it's actually like truly a liquidity mode. Like who, whichever bridge has the most liquidity in it is going to win and like, being first to doing that is important. And then we saw this thing where like, hey, these are actually open permissionless. And there's, you know, tons of bridges with all these different guarantees, different security guarantees, different liquidity guarantees, different UX. But they were kind of like hard to develop with for developers. And so like people kind of just use them almost like payment channels just to like send money across, never like do computation across these things. And uh, I think with things like Layer Zero, Nomad, and Connects, you know, the programming model has gotten easier. It's almost like this unlock of like, you don't have to be a low-level system engineer. You can be like shitty web dev, JavaScript dev, and like still write bridge code now, mm. right? And like, you don't need to be as technically sophisticated. You don't need to like really be in the weeds, understanding the communication protocol and the messaging and like, Oh, is it little Endian? None of that stuff. It's like way more 
drop in plug and play and we're I think the developer unlock of that is going to be pretty big. And that's that's exciting. Even you can write bridge code. I mean someone should make that their motto. We broke Max Bronstein joining Synapse as COO and I told him that they should make their slogan do you need a bridge for that? <laughs> be a pretty good slogan, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even mention them. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. I mean, they were they were like one of the fastest deploying bridges ever. Like they just like went on every EVM chain like There's eight, 15. They're on like 15 of them. Right. And they're doing like this like avalanche subnet like stuff. What what I mean is like the bridge wars are very very much not like the hummingbird project. No. And and like that's really cool. That's very different than normal finance. Yeah, they're actually like all operating like no one's hitting each other in a sense. Right. Well, you know, I, I think if there were no hacks, then they would be more competitive with each other. But right now it's just <laughs> like, can we like as an ecosystem get people to trust these things? Right. Like they're still yeah, more at that stage we're, we're first. Screwed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, hey, Tarun, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you dealing with uh, Wasp the bee that almost killed me. That thing was massive. So I don't know if that'll be in the show or not, but if it wasn't, there was a bee that attacked Look, me. I tried to get a screenshot so I could post it on Twitter, uh, but like, unfortunately, I didn't get the, the thing of you looking angry and like... Phew. It was huge. So where can our listeners learn more about what you are doing and about Gauntlet? Uh, Twitter. My Twitter is my name. T-A-R-U-N-C-H-I-T-R-A and Gauntlet, also Twitter, G-A-U-N-T-L-E-T N-E-T-W-O-R-K and uh, I feel like Twitter's the easiest. I mean, I guess we, we do post in other places, but honestly, yeah. it's crypto. If you're not on Twitter, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah, literally, what are you doing? Well, <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter as well uh, and we will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.